ordinary superheroes of the Old Testament. As we highlight these ordinary people that came in contact with an extraordinary God and they changed the world. You might say, well, Mel, I'm not like these superheroes of the Old Testament. Yes, you are. They were people just like you and me. And all through the Old Testament, there is this thread of prophecy that's coming about the Messiah. That Jesus is coming, the Messiah, the anointed one is coming. This thread of prophecy from the very beginning all the way through Old Testament history about this one that would come that would solve your sin problem and mine, the greatest news we have ever received. My prayer would be every one of you would say, yes, Mel, that's the greatest gift I've ever been given is my salvation and what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. Nothing else comes close. No one else is like him. He's unique in all of history. No one else has the prophecies about his life like Jesus has. No one else is like that. Unique in all of of, of human history. And what he did on the cross and when he rose again was awesome. That's why we're here today. That's why you can bank your life and your eternity on the truth of Jesus Christ and not fall into other false religions or false gods worshiping them, but we're here to worship the one true God. With that in mind, let's have a word of prayer as we open up the word of God this morning. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that we can worship you today. Thank you for these brothers and sisters that are here. God, I pray that as we leave this place today, we would leave changed people more convicted about this truth that Jesus Christ is the answer for the world today. Lord, that we would follow you. And we love you, Lord. We love you. You went to the cross for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before I start highlighting the ordinary superheroes of the Old Testament, I want to give the big picture of the Old Testament. We went about halfway through it last week. We, we want to continue that because it's so important to understand the big picture of the Bible. Many people don't really understand the Old Testament. I mean, they love jumping into the new, right? I love getting into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and all the letters by Paul and the general epistles. Love that. But Mel, I struggle with the Old Testament. That's why I want to give you the big picture. The bottom line is this. The Old Testament is a fascinating account of the history of God reaching out to rebellious people that he created. Now, he created them perfectly, but they rebelled against him. He gave them the freedom to make a choice. Follow me or not. Obey me or not. They didn't. In order to deeply display his love, grace, and mercy for all of eternity. I hope today you know that God is displaying his love, grace, and mercy in you. That if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been born again, you've been made alive spiritually, you are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins, like Ephesians 2 says. You are alive. You've been made alive together with Jesus Christ. The Kind of the theme verse of this series as we talk about it is Acts 4.13. The ordinary disciples... I love them. They were amazingly uh, common people. They were amazingly ordinary. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And yet they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The power of Jesus to change lives. The power of Jesus to empower ordinary people like you and me. I hope that encourages you. It certainly encourages me to know that God isn't looking for some superstar to use. He's looking for ordinary people who are available like you and like me with all of our shortcomings and failures, yet open to the reality that God is at work in our lives to change us, to be more like Jesus. Hey, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Acts chapter 17. 
We're going to start at verse 24. This is Paul at the Areopagus. In Athens, Greece, the place where they would go and debate and, and people would share new ideas that they had. I'll start at verse 22. It says this. Paul's in Athens into a secular crowd. This isn't a Jewish audience, right? It's a secular, uh, non-Jewish audience. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And this is how he describes the story of salvation. I love how Paul describes it. The God who made the world and everything in it. See, I love the fact that he starts at creation. I do that a lot too with people that don't have a biblical background, that that haven't been raised in the church. How can you not see God all around you? How how can you not realize that it takes much more faith to believe that the world and the universe, uh, if it happened by some random process of events with no intelligence behind it, that takes much more faith than to believe that there's a God who designed this universe. That's what Paul starts out by saying, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. It's powerful truth, Right? He now dwells in the temple of the human heart within us. No building can contain God, nor is he served by human hands, as if, though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything's a pretty big amount of things, isn't it? Everything. He sustains everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. There's an affirmation of the Garden of Eden story to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods, periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This is how intimately God is involved in his world. He, he determined the, a lot of periods they would live and where they would live, the boundaries of where they would live, that they, and here it is, that they should seek God in the hopes that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, For in God we live and move and have our being. It's a powerful passage. That in God we live and move and have our being. That God is drawing people to himself. We talked about last week the books of the Bible and that we are going to be drawing these major superheroes of the Bible from the historical section. And the poetical books, they will fit in. The prophetical books, they will fit in as well. But we are drawing our history of the Old Testament, our major superheroes, ordinary superheroes of the faith, from those historical books that give us the story of God's salvation. We talked about the fact that the Old Testament is God's awesome account of restoring a right relationship with his creation. What is the Old Testament all about? If somebody asks me that, I say this. It's about God pursuing us, God going after us. He wants to restore a right relationship with with us, even though we've rebelled against him. See, it's all about God's affection for us. My prayer would be today that every one of you would know that God loves you more than anyone has ever loved you on this earth, more than your mom has loved you, your dad has loved you. God loves you more perfectly than anyone. I remember having my first child. And I was just overwhelmed by this little baby girl that God had given to us. And of course, as a dad, you just love this little child of yours. But I began to realize God loves my 
baby girl more than I do, more perfectly than I do. Having children taught me a lot about love and the kind of love and intensity of love that God has for me and for you. That's why he's pursuing us. It's all about God's affection for us. Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. We talked about this. Not iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus had a very high opinion of the Old Testament. Please don't buy into this lie that, oh, you know, the Bible's filled with errors. Look at all, I've had people say to me, look at all the different translations. The Bible's been changed. I said, that's ridiculous. That's, that's not a change in the Bible. If I had a letter up here in the beautiful language of Norwegian, and it was on the screen, and you were all Norwegian translators, and I said to you, please translate this Norwegian letter into English, and you were experts in the Norwegian language, you would all take out your pens and start writing down uh, what you think the best translation of that Norwegian letter is. Now, would the translations be different from one another, right? Would they be different? Probably a little bit, yes. But if you're an expert in the Norwegian language and you're translating it into English, the message would be the same. That's what the various versions are. They are translating God's word from the original languages of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And yes, the versions differ a little bit. But the faithful versions, the ones, the translations, give us the same message. It's not a change in the Bible. People who say that have no idea of the manuscript evidence that supports the Old Testament and the New Testament. No book of antiquity is like the Bible in its accuracy. And yet people want to diminish it and attack it. See, the Old Testament is all about God pursuing us. He gave us a book that we can look at to understand his plan for redemption, his plan to save you and for me. God created us without sin, but with the ability to choose. But we've rebelled against God and his plan. God is pursuing our hearts to make us whole, whole again. We ended, I think, last week talking about all the things that Genesis teaches us, where all these things began in the book of Genesis. It tells us why the world is like it is today, what our problem is, what the answer is. It, God, in the first five books of the Bible, in the Pentateuch, we have a geographical understanding of where this action took place. We know the book of Genesis, for example, brings Abraham into the promised land. And at the very end, Joseph brings his family down to Egypt where they are in slavery, the Jews, for 400 years. That's the book of Exodus happening in Egypt. God saves them out of, of Egypt, redeems his people, brings them to Mount Sinai, and gives the Levites and priests instructions about how to worship God. The geographical location of the book of Leviticus, Mount Sinai. This is a book pertaining to the Levites. That's where it gets its name. Well, as you know, they leave Mount Sinai to conquer the promised land. They send out 12 spies. They fail God's test. And God says, you're going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. That wandering is uh, given to us, the account of it, in the book of Numbers. As they wander in the desert for 40 years. Now, Moses is not allowed to enter the promised land. So he gives three long sermons in the book of Deuteronomy right before the Israelites enter the promised land and conquer it. Those are the books that we're going to draw a lot of our superheroes from. 
That gives you a geographical understanding of these first five books. It's important to understand that. This is not a disconnected series of books. All these books are connected into the greater grand story of God's saving us, saving you. It really is your story today. Here's the second thing we need to understand. God's powerful declaration in the Old Testament is that there is only one true God. One true God. It's about God's protection of us. See, what God is protecting us from is all the false teaching out there, all the false gods, all the idolatry that people get caught up in. And you know, if you were to define the word idolatry, it would be anything in your life that you love more than God. That's what idolatry means. It's not just these little wood or stone idols that people would worship. It's anything in your life that you love more than God is idolatry. And what God wants to protect us from is the negative, destructive impact of idolatry. When you love something more than God, it will take you down a path of destruction. God's declaration is this. There is only one true God. That one true God is reflected in the very name of God. We talked about this. The name of Yahweh at the burning bush when Moses says, hey, if I go down to Egypt... They have all these gods out there, and all of them have names. If I go down to Egypt to lead the Jews out, they will say, what's the name of your God? And, of course, God gave Moses his very personal name, a powerful name. What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. In the Hebrew, four letters called the Tetragrammaton. We covered this last week. I think this is where we ended last week. The four letters that are so important to understand who God is. There are the transliterated four Hebrew letters. And we know that later on, scholars came and added the vowels to that. I'm going to turn around from left to right so we can read it more easily. Those letters, uh, the vowels were added to try to get the vowel sounds between those consonants. And they took the name of God, Adonai, another name of God, and put the vowels between those letters, which is transliterated into Jehovah. But scholars today believe a better pronunciation is what? Yahweh, exactly. You should know that. The all-powerful personal name of, of God, Yahweh. That's why it was blasphemy for Jesus to say before Abraham was born, at least in the minds of the Jews, it wasn't blasphemy from the say because he was God in flesh. But the Jews perceived it to be blasphemy when Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I what? I am. He took the very personal name of God and gave it to himself because he was God in flesh. And to really understand the Old Testament, we need to understand how God was moving through the Old Testament, reaching out to people, making covenants with them, contracts, if you will. Very powerful covenants with people, a handshake agreement, if you will. This is how you are to act. This is the promise that I will make to you. These covenants help us understand what happened in the Old Testament. As you know, sin became so rampant in the world, we're going to cover a man by the name of Noah that God destroyed the earth through a flood. But there was a one family that he saved, Noah and his family. After the flood, Noah was given a covenant. It's found in Genesis 9. It says this, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. 
and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God made a covenant with Noah, unconditional. Noah, you, you don't have to worry about this. I'm making a promise to you. This will never happen again. God would never destroy the earth like this again. And we know that as God began to work out his salvific plan, his plan of salvation, he chose one man to be the father of a great nation. Anybody know the name of that person? Abraham, exactly. He made a covenant with Abraham. Another major covenant in the Old Testament. You should understand this. I was watching someone criticize Christians for uh, their belief in the Bible. And he was referring to Old Testament passages that like, why don't Christians follow this? Why don't Christians follow this? In the Old Testament. Some of the commands of the Old Testament. He didn't understand the whole principle of covenants with God. See, the Abrahamic covenant was a covenant that God would bless the entire world through the nation that Abraham would begin. He would be the father of a great nation, the nation of Israel. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A reference to the coming of the Messiah, that through the nation of Israel, one person would come that would change everything, that would give people hope, that would pay the price for your sins and mine. The Abrahamic covenant, a powerful covenant in the Old Testament. Then we keep moving on. And perhaps the central covenant in the Old Testament is when Moses led the people out of Israel to Mount Sinai. God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. It wasn't just with one individual, but it was with the nation of Israel. The, Noah, the Mosaic covenant said this in Exodus 19 as they were at Mount Sinai. If you indeed will obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. The Mosaic Covenant or the Covenant of the Law was central in the Old Testament. A key covenant in the Old Testament. An agreement God made with the nation of Israel. If you will obey me, you'll be my treasured possession. And God gave them his law. And the nation of Israel became a true nation. Well, out of that nation that began to be built. God made another covenant with one of the kings of Israel who would come later in history. Another powerful moment in the nation of Israel and their history when God made the Davidic covenant, a promise that the throne of David lasts forever. In 2 Samuel, I will establish the throne of this kingdom forever. How could that happen? It's a reference to the coming of the Messiah, the God in flesh, the one who will reign forever. That's Jesus, who is a descendant of David. Another powerful moment in the salvation story of you and me, that the throne of David would last forever through the Messiah that would come. And then in the Old Testament, the last covenant I want to highlight, there's some other minor covenants, but these are the five major ones that are in the Old Testament, is the new covenant. Jeremiah predicted that a covenant would come between God and man that would be different than all the other covenants. Jeremiah, the prophet, the weeping prophet, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's why, my friends, it was so powerful when Jesus stood up in front of his disciples And he said, 
This cup is the what in my blood? The new covenant in my blood. Any Jewish boy would know right away that Jesus was referring to the words of Jeremiah, this new covenant that would come between God and man. The old covenant is gone. The new covenant is here. This new covenant of amazing grace that God is pouring out to people like you and me, that you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, the distance and the gap between God and man broken down by this one Messiah who gave his life for you and for me on the cross. A powerful prediction in the book of Jeremiah. And Jesus fulfilled it when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Changed everything. No more sacrifices. No more meeting with God in temples made with stone. God doesn't live there. He now lives within you. He lives inside of you. You are the temple of God. And see, God wanted to protect us and everyone on this earth from the false gods that are out there. See, these false gods don't exist. They'll only lead you from these amazing promises that God has given. They keep us from the one true God. They're false religions that teach lies and ultimately destroy. When I was in Germany, I met an elementary school teacher. And in Germany, the official religion of Germany is Christianity. That's how they're established. It is the official religion. They have state churches that are funded by the government, which I'm not saying is a good idea. But that's what they have. And I said to this teacher in a public elementary school in Germany, you must be very blessed to know, she claims to be a Christian, that you can teach Jesus without any repercussion, that you can teach these kids that Jesus Christ is the way. You don't have to worry about losing your job like teachers do in America if you would teach that in a public school. To my shock, this is what she said. She said, oh, Mel, we don't teach that. We teach that all religions are equally valid. And I said, what? I said, you teach all, this is a Christian nation. You teach all religions are equally valid? Now, I know this doesn't play well in our culture, But the whole core message of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, is this, that Jesus is God in flesh, lived a life without sin, taught without error. Said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And when you look at the uniqueness of Christ, there's no doubt in anyone who looks at Jesus objectively that he stands head and shoulders above every other religious leader that ever walked the planet. This is a core belief of Christianity. We should never shy away from that. And if you do shy away from it, you contradict the very words of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and in essence call him a liar. We don't want to do that because it only leads to destruction. Here's the third thing we need to understand about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God's gracious outworking of the details of his awesome plan to save us. When we read the Old Testament, it's all about God working out his plan. And it's awesome. He's doing it in such a way that he is in charge. He has the authority. He's doing it according to his plan. You might say, well, if I was God, I would do it differently. I would do the plan differently. I tell people this all the time. I've mentioned it here. If you had God's power, maybe you would do things differently. But if you had God's power and his wisdom, 
you would do the plan the exact same way. But God did it. As he works out his plan of salvation, he's patient with us, enduring with us. And that's what I want to highlight here. This really highlights God's patience with us as rebellious people against him. See, the Bible tells us God's salvation plan in an awesome way. My prayer would be that we here at Riverview Church would have an incredible confidence in the Word of God. People tell me so many things about the Word of God when they attack it that aren't true. I can tell they've never studied the Word of God. I can tell they've never studied how the Word of God came together. They don't know the manuscript evidence for the Word of God. I hear from my neighbors. I hear from people in the marketplace. I hear from people that I encounter on airplanes. They attack the Word of God because they don't know the Word of God. They've heard something somewhere from somebody and they've latched onto that statement and they use it again and again without looking into the truth of God's Word. Let me tell you some amazing facts about the Word of God and how unique it is and why we love it here at Riverview Church. Look at this. 66 books were written over 1,500 years. 40 different authors, three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Diverse literary genre, there's prophetic works, there's poetic works, there's historical works. Written on three different continents, in 13 different countries. Yet the Bible speaks with one voice on all matters that it addresses and never contradicts itself. In the original manuscripts, without error, inerrant. One unified story about God's salvation plan from beginning to end. God's salvation plan. Even when Jesus stood before Pilate and was under the authority of Pilate, people might say, man, that plan seems out of control. Pilate's in control. I love what Jesus said when Jesus heard the words of Pilate that said, hey, don't you realize, Pilate said to Jesus, I have the authority to release you or crucify you. Jesus said this, you would have no authority over me had it not been given to you where? From above. Pilate, you think you're in charge? You're not in charge. Whatever authority you have has been given to you from God above. God is in charge. This is his plan and he's working it out. 66 different books, 40 different authors, three different languages, yet it conveys an amazingly unified message. If you study, for example, the Koran, you'll know that one person wrote that book. And even though one person wrote that book, it has a number of contradictions that over the years have been corrected. One person could not put a book together without many contradictions that have been corrected. The Bible is different. It's not been corrected. It can't be corrected. People say that to me. Well, you don't understand manuscript evidence if you say that. The manuscripts and copies of the Bible. For example, back to that Norwegian letter example. If my letter conveyed a lecture that I heard, if my Norwegian letter, hey, I listened to this guy and this is what he said. If we took all of the notes from that lecture and pulled them all together, you would have, even though I don't have a manuscript of what he said, you would have a pretty good idea of, of what that original lecture was all about. What you have in the Bible is thousands of copies of manuscripts that support what the Bible says. And comparing them all gives us a 99.99% accuracy of what the original Word of God said. It's an awesome book. 
Please don't allow your friends or others in this world to diminish the impact of the Word of God in your life or diminish the truthfulness of the Word of God in your life. See, all through time, people keep rejecting God's plan. Even though he's working it out step by step, they keep rejecting God's plan, resulting in lying, fighting, killing, and more which, by the way, speaks to the truthfulness of God's word. God didn't hide the errors of his people. God didn't hide the error of King David with Bathsheba. Speaks to the truthfulness of God's word. Everything in the Bible that is there is truthful. Doesn't mean God condones everything that happened in the Bible, right? But it records accurately what happens in the Bible. It's a powerful book. That's why as we build the history of God's salvation story over this sermon series, my prayer would be you'd love the Word of God. You would allow it to speak into your heart. Don't buy into the lies of this world. See, what God does, He chooses from the world a nation from whom the entire world will be blessed, the Abrahamic covenant. Then from that nation... He chooses a tribe, the tribe of Judah, from which the Messiah will come. From that tribe, he chooses a family, the family of David, from whom the Messiah would come. And from that family, a a person who would stand central to human history above head and shoulders, above anyone else who's ever lived on this planet. One person who's changed the world forever and has changed your eternity and mine. My prayer would be all of you would rejoice in the God that you serve today, that you would hold your head high as believers in Jesus Christ. No one else like him. No one else who loves the world more than him. No one else who's done more for the world than Jesus Christ. No one else who's done more for you than Jesus Christ. That we would never be ashamed of him. Here's the last thing I want to say about the Old Testament as we conclude. The Old Testament is God's astounding desire for relationship over ritual, for relationship over ritual with us, for love over fear. That as we come together as people of God and we see this story working out and we look at passages in the Word of God that highlight ordinary superheroes, that God is seeking relationship over ritual. I think of the story, and we'll touch on this, with Saul and Samuel. Saul went off to conquer a, a neighboring land, and he did conquer a neighboring land, but God said, don't take anything back with you. Well, when he comes back from battle, he has all these sheep and bulls with him, and Samuel meets Saul and says, what are these sheep and, and goats that you have here, and bulls, what's all this? Oh, Samuel, the men wanted to give a fitting offering to God for this victory we've won. Samuel says these powerful words. Saul, Better to obey God than sacrifice. Better to do all these things on the outside that look good, but in your heart you're disobeying God. See, God desires relationship over ritual and outward performance. God looks right into our heart. See, it's God wanting to connect with us in a personal level. That's why I know many of you say, and I say it often as well, it's not about religion. It's about what? Relationship. When you come to faith in Christ, it's not so much about jumping through the hoops to get to heaven. I got to go to church every week to get to heaven. I got to do good works every week to get to heaven. No, that's not it. That's ritual. And that's what Paul was banking on. In the book of Philippians, he said, man, all of the stuff that I was doing to try to earn my way to heaven, it's all garbage to me now. 
Because it was keeping me from the truth, the truth of this, that there is one person who stepped into history as the worthy Lamb of God who laid down his life for you and for me. And by faith in him, we are set free. And out of love for him, after receiving eternal life and forgiveness, we want to be like him. We want a relationship with him. We want to spend time with him. That means opening up the word and letting it feed you. That means talking about him with your spouse. That means praying together with your spouse and your kids and your grandkids, making him a vibrant part of your life. It's not just about going to church every Sunday and I've done my duty, I've jumped through the hoop. It's about an ongoing relationship. And I believe a major step in maturity in the lives of people is when they have a sense that God is with them. You're walking through the day, you know Jesus is with you. You're walking through the day, you're having this ongoing prayer conversation with Jesus throughout the day. Ongoing prayer. Just being able to, I was having dinner this week and I was just overwhelmed just by myself. I was, I was driving somewhere and I had to stop and, and get something to eat. I stopped and get something to eat. I'm just sitting there going, Lord, thank you. I just had this overwhelming, Lord, thank you for your blessings. Lord, thank you for who you are. I'm looking at people walking by me as I'm having this dinner alone. And I'm thinking, wow, if they don't know Jesus, their lives must be so empty. There's, there's, there's such a lack of hope. But in Jesus, my friends, we have hope. We have a relationship with this God who loves us. We have the ability to live out a life of meaning and purpose. We can come together as a church and build up one another and encourage one another and experience the love of God in this place that the world cannot experience. So God wants to connect with us. I love what it says in Deuteronomy. It says this, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, he loves us. The story is an awesome story of love. One of the prophets by the name of Zechariah gave this message from the Lord. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I love that verse. My daughter put that on a board for me and gave it to me as a, a Father's Day gift a couple years ago. He will rejoice over you with singing. Do you have that kind of relationship with God? Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that as you pick up the Word of God, it's your story? It's the story of your life. The Old Testament is truly your story. It's God after your heart. It accurately helps us understand ourselves today and how to relate to our Creator. And as we walk through the Old Testament, it highlights where we came from, why we are here, and where we are going. So my friends, as we go through the Word of God and we look at passage after passage of some of these ordinary superheroes of the Word of God, may you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God wants to use you the same way. And if you're a person that says, Mel, yeah, I'm an ordinary person, I'm an ordinary person, then you're the exact kind of hero God's looking for to change the world through his power. The influence that you have this in the circles of influence that God gave you, the boundaries in which you live, God wants to use you in a powerful way. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray together this morning.
And as your heads are bowed before our awesome God, if there's someone here today that doesn't know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, hasn't placed their faith and trust in Jesus, today can be the day. It's just a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Forgive my sins. From this day forward, I want to live for you. The moment you place your faith and trust in Jesus and his work on the cross, you're forgiven. You're made alive again, no longer dead in your trespasses and sins, but made alive together with Jesus. You inherit eternal life. It's an awesome story. It's awesome. And Lord Jesus, you're alive. You're right here with us. May we as a church never doubt that. May we as a church rejoice over the fact that you rejoice over us with singing. You love us. You want relationship with us. The veil of the temple torn in two. The barriers are gone. We can cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Come into your presence. You're awesome, God. You're awesome. bow before you in your presence. We are your children. So, God, I pray that as we leave this place, we walk in your strength and your power. You are our shepherd. You're the one who leads us. We pray, God, that everything we do would honor you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So stand together and sing this song.